Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And before we get into today's program, I first want to give a shout-out to Black Beauty, or BB as we know her here in the salon. It's BB's silken voice that you hear after I play a recorded lecture here in the salon. And as you may know, BB lives down under, near Melbourne, in fact. And I've been receiving emails asking if I know how she's doing with that uh, major lockdown they are now under. Well, she's doing fine. We've uh, exchanged several emails recently, and uh, just like you and me, uh, she's doing as best as she can, but uh, her spirits are good. I also would like to give a shout-out to Rindy and Jake, two friends who have been listening to my stories for a long time before I started these podcasts. And uh, I want to thank you guys for sticking with me all these years, and hopefully we'll be able to meet in person again one day. Now, for today's program... I'm going to play a recording of this past Thursday's live salon. As you know, the Thursday salons are held at 6.30 p.m. London time. That's 10.30 in the morning out here on the West Coast. And we do that so that our European saloners can more easily join us. I guess that I'd probably better come up with a few salons catering to the uh, Australian time zone, (laughs) New Zealand time zones as well, so that uh, BB and her friends can also join us sometime. Anyway, uh, last Thursday I invited Rio Han to the live salon to tell his stories about the time in the Amazon when Terrence and Dennis McKenna joined Wade Davis on Rio's boat and their now legendary meeting in the jungle took place. However, uh, the high point, uh, no pun intended, (laughs) the high point of our conversation was his in-depth discussion of Datura. And in case you hadn't noticed it, this is the first time that Datura has been discussed in the salon. And since our travel opportunities are somewhat restricted right now, maybe real stories about taking Datura and Kathmandu can at least give us a virtual uh, feeling of having exotic experiences in exotic places. And as you listen to this conversation, you might even get the bug to begin finding a way to satisfy your own adventurous spirit. As you're going to hear in this podcast, the research vessel Heraclitus is going to be looking for a new crew around the same time that this pandemic is expected to come to an end. At least uh, the pandemic coming to an end is what us starry-eyed optimists dream of. (laughs) So why not at least dream a little? I've discovered that every once in a while a dream can actually come true. So uh, now without any further ado, here is the conversation that transpired in the most recent live salon. Oh, look who's here. We have a guest here. I didn't know if he'd show up. Here he is. Let me see if we can get you unmuted. Uh, I didn't know if Rio would be here. Uh, I invited him, and uh, actually I've I've, uh, talked to him a few times uh, via email uh, in March, or sometime when the pandemic started, as I understand the story. Now we'll get it straight. But as I understand it, Rio, you were on your way to... Uh, England to visit your grandson, and now you're stuck in in Morocco. Is that right? And now, yes. Um, just a few days before the flight was supposed to go, they locked down the borders, canceled all the flights, and uh, we've been here ever since in a uh, town called Essaouira, and it's on the Atlantic 
Pacific Coast, uh, and a very, very beautiful place to be. Lots of wind, so we've been pretty good. Uh, that helps. And uh, kind of isolated, which is fine. And a lot of fun here, especially now it's uh, the tourist season, and so there are a lot of Moroccan tourists from around who have come in. So, so uh, what's your prognosis on getting out of there and getting to England? Well, going to England's a whole different question. Uh, and, I mean, it's become rather complicated because, you know, once we leave, um, unless uh, we're residents, um, we can't come back in being, right now, no one can come in except residents and, and uh, citizens. And uh, once we leave, because of the restriction on Americans, there isn't met many places to go, actually. Huh. <laughs> As the great Gildersleeve used to say, what a revolt and development this is. <laughs> yes. But, well, but, for but, now, but, I'm okay, because uh, we're doing fine here. Everything's pretty good. And, uh, you know, at some point, yeah, it would be good to be able to come back to the States. I guess we've got to wait uh, to see what happens here. Yeah, now they're, they're talking about not letting uh, Americans back in if they've been tested positive. So <laughs> you've got another hurdle to get over. But uh, I've been telling the people here about you for quite a while and that uh, uh, eventually I'd like to talk a, a little bit about Biosphere 2. But uh, let's just jump into the Amazon, because you were on a boat with Terrence McKenna and Wade Davis, as I uh, recall, and I'd like to hear some of those stories. Okay. Well, in uh, what we took uh, the research vessel Heraclitus, which is a ship that I participated in building, um, <clears throat> which we launched in 75, and then in 80, I organized a two-year ethnopharmacological expedition. We ended up uh, going 2,000 miles up the Amazon into the Peruvian Amazon. And I put on board a phytochemical laboratory, which allowed me to do extractions from <clears throat> fresh plant material and work with shaman there for about two years. Uh, that, uh, that's kind of the big overview of that. Terrence um, and Dennis and Wade Davis all came on to part of the expedition, and uh, some work came out of that, especially some work that Dennis used in his doctoral thesis. And uh, so that was a very interesting early intersection, Dr. Richard Evan Schultes, who was head of the Harvard Botanical Museum and is pretty much known as the father of modern ethnobotany, introduced Wade and I when Wade was there at Harvard as still as a graduate student. And how did Terrence get hooked into that whole thing? You know, I'm trying to remember, but I have a feeling that a uh, recollection that maybe Wade contacted them. I, it's it's I foggy like in my memory. I feel like had a connection I did. in Vancouver. The, uh, can you repeat that? You're kind of breaking up. Um, from Dennis's book, I recall that I think Wade and uh, Dennis had a connection with the same university in Vancouver. 
That's yes, yeah, because Wade's from that area. Yeah, he's still living there, I think. Well, he moved back there now, and actually, uh, Den- er, um, yeah, Dennis moved up there. Yeah. In fact, uh, we were just talking a week or so ago here uh, in the salon about the uh, article that Wade uh, Davis just published about uh, the uh, end of America, and it's it's a dynamite article. I can't remember what magazine it was in, but uh, it, it's uh, it's really Rolling worth reading. Was it Rolling Stone? That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's really worth reading. It's a long article, but it's uh, you know it's, he's got the perspective of distance from the United States that really I have, think helps. Uh, a lot, so uh, that's that's really worth re- uh, reading. Uh, that, isn't isn't that the time though that Wade, when you were together, when Wade and Terrence kind of got into it a little bit? Uh, yeah, there was some stuff that went on there. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, Wade was not so happy with uh, Terrence, especially, and then I think Dennis as well. Just indulging in a lot of different substances during the time they were supposed to be doing, you know, collecting and field work. And in that sense, you know, that wasn't really Terrence's thing either. Um, You know, he was not the type of field scientist that Wade Davis is, or probably even Dennis, who was more, of course, Dennis was more laboratory oriented ultimately. Right. Yeah, Wade really picked up on Schulte's, uh, you know, trail, I think, and, and is sort of the premier of the, uh, in the, uh, the jungle kind of, uh, ethnobotanist now, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. But- he, uh, though he did move off, um, into more dealing in anthropology. Mm. And as a, and then also, you know, really got into his writing which he said at one point to me anyway, that he had really found his voice and found that to be, you know, tremendously satisfying. Yeah. He, he built himself as an anthropologist in this article. And I think uh, you're right. That's uh, where he's uh, sees himself primarily. Uh, but I, I, uh, as a little side note, I know that, that he and Terrence had some, some issues and in, uh, I think it was 99, January 99 at the Entheobotany Conference in, uh, in uh, Palenque. Uh, Wade Davis was one of the scheduled speakers, and uh, we all got down there and found out he'd canceled because he didn't want to spend two weeks in the jungle with Terrence again, That's <laughs> what he said. But uh, here, a couple months ago, uh, I, th- I think it was uh, the uh, Symposia uh, live streams, where uh, Wade and Dennis McKenna were both uh, there together talking. I don't know if you saw that, but Wade really mellowed out and uh, allowed us how, uh, well, there was a lot of tension back then, but it really wasn't all that necessary, it seems like. So it seems like they've, they've reconciled the whole thing pretty well now. There was, you know, kind of around with a number of people, a lot of tension as people were finishing their PhDs. And... Mm. You know, that, you know, did somehow bring about a lot of tension at the time. And also, I think they were coming from very different perspectives. Right. But um, Wade did say at a talk, I think this was the talk he gave in Girona, uh, where, let's see, was that last year? Yeah, last year, a year ago, uh, end of uh, 
May, beginning of June, we had the world third world ayahuasca conference in Girona, Spain. And uh, he said that he really credited Terence and Dennis with keeping things going, you know, through the uh, period when everything was shut down. Yeah, that's that's what he said with his conversation with Dennis too. That he said that uh, in in uh, retrospective retrospectively, he he looked back and saw that uh, without what mainly what Terence was doing and spreading the word, the whole thing could have died on the vine, and that Terence kept the the talk of it alive which is you know pretty obvious now but it wasn't back then i don't think right i think a lot of people you know have told me that they were really inspired by terrence yeah and of course terrence was that type of charismatic figure and in his strange way of speaking (laughs) to mesmerize people yeah, and, and, you know, we've listened to a lot of Terrence here at the salon, and, and he's been the first person to say, hey, you know, I'm, I don't believe everything I say. You know, I'm an entertainer, first of all. And, and uh, he kind of got stuck on his 2012 thing, uh, Time Wave, because, you know, he was making his living <laughs> going around talking about it. But uh, he, he kind of painted himself into the corner with uh, the end of the world in 2012. And, of course, he, he bowed out 12 years before that. So, uh, uh Predicting the future is not really a good thing for uh, prophets to do, I don't think. At least the future, <laughs> or closer than 150 years or so. <laughs> I, I wonder if you know, when I recall when Terrence originally, and maybe he contacted me, that's what I'm saying. So maybe he contacted me after Wade made the connection. In any case, we were talking about he presented himself as an ornithologist. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but like you say, field work was not his long suit after he quit being a butterfly collector. I guess. Right. <laughs> hey, tell us a little more about the Heraclitus because uh, Raphael has been here a few times, and Raphael spent a year or so on the Heraclitus a couple of years ago, right? He did. He did. So the the Heraclitus is an eighty-two foot ferro cement uh, Chinese junk which incorporates uh, an ancient design and modern materials. For example, we have aluminum mass, uh, uses the modern material of ferro-cement. And at the moment, it is in Roses, Spain, which is about an hour uh, north of Barcelona. And it's going through a complete rebuild. Actually, at the moment, we're stopped until probably September. Um, hopefully, we can get going again next month. They they were doing better than they relocked down, you know, and we'll just have yeah. to see what's out if people can get back to work. Uh, but we've got a crew there who uh, is doing the work, and then we've brought in some professional uh, people to help with the cementing because that's a very, very difficult and labor-intensive um, work and we're using now a new polymer type of cement so we're hoping we can get a lot longer life out of it but still you know launched in 75 and what been several years uh, since we put it up into dry dock because it needed a lot more work than we had originally thought but the ship is uniquely designed for a group of people it's designed to be sailed by a minimum of seven people and about a maximum of 14. Let's say we like to keep it around 12. 
and everybody does everything to some extent. Obviously, some people get much more involved in the, uh, say, sailing than they might in whatever the scientific project is at at the time. We also do theater as a way of uh, group dynamics. And so, again, some people get more into that. Others just, okay, I'll do it. It's happening. Um, And it's usually a mixed crew, men and women, uh, very often you know, young people, a predominance probably of young people, but still older people come on board, no problem. And uh, the ship's pretty much self-sufficient. It's got a low draft, so it's able to go into coastal areas. That's one of the design features was that we could go into shallow draft areas. Now, what's the mission going to be when it's, when it's refitted? What's the mission, the next mission going to be? Uh, the next mission that we're discussing is to, and of course all of this now is subject to what happens with you know, the coronavirus, but um, to go down the west coast of Africa and then across and go back into the Amazon and then come back out and do sort of a circular thing around the Atlantic Ocean following you know, the trade winds. So when we're finished, I think we've got, because of the delays now, and we don't know, I'm going to say two years, um, maybe sooner, but I think, you know, with everything kind of going up and going down, that that's not impossible. I'll type into the chat here the website um, where you can look for more information about it and what's going on. And also see a photographs, and I think there might be some pictures there um, from the Amazon and then the Around the Tropic World expedition, which I did following that expedition. So let me just make sure I've got this right. Okay, there it is. RVHeraclitus.org. Right, RVHeraclitus.org. RV for research vessel, I assume. Absolutely. Good. And, and what type of research on the next leg will they be focusing on? Uh, oceanographic or, or the coast? Um, we've been doing a lot of work on oral histories for mm. several years now, mainly concentrating in the Mediterranean. Uh, but now we will extend that project. There was also the possibility of doing a project and we'll see again where it's at because we discussed this before the uh, virus took off um, in association with an artist who's exhibiting at the Smithsonian on tracing the black uh, history, the history of the black peoples coming out of Africa. And so we may be able to get involved in that, again, depending on what's happening at the time. And then in the Amazon, I would like to see it go back into an ethnopharmacological uh, research program. Um, we've done over the years a lot of work with coral reefs. That went on for quite a while. Um, we've done, you know, dr- uh, drilling, of course, samples and studying climate change. 
So there's been just a whole array of projects over the years. But I think the, and the other one that we want to do is something with plastics, um, looking into something where we can help maybe coastal communities, small coastal communities that usually have a lot of plastics, you know, washing ashore, mm-hmm. um, to find ways to deal with that problem. So I've been doing some research into that area of repurposing, how you can repurpose plastics, especially, you know, plastic water bottles and the like. Well, real as you as you uh, interview some of these people, I, I hope they're, they're audio interviews too. And if if you have some interviews uh, that you think would be uh, interesting to uh, a wide variety of people, I, I'd be happy to uh, you know look into podcasting some of them and spreading them out a little bit more and giving you some publicity for your work. Okay, if it, a lot of them are uh, because we are studying the coastal areas and the disappearance of the fishing, the traditional fishing cultures. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, it doesn't quite fit right in, but if you know you think they're appropriate, certainly. Well, you know, I'm I'm a sailor, and anything to do with the ocean, <laughs> I'm interested okay. in. And, and before you got here, we were just talking to Mary. She just had an exciting uh, ride through the Straits of San Juan on a, a 30-foot uh, sailboat. So uh, we have sailors among us. And uh, okay. think, you know, I don't think we have to be strictly into psychedelics here in the salon because uh, psychedelics, you know, thinking, you know, is thinking outside the box. And uh, when we're thinking about the environment and and uh, immigration and, and uh, history, I, I think we can get out of the box and, and it'll fit into the salon quite well. So uh, you don't, it doesn't have to be about drugs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know I, I've been on, on interviews in the past where they said, no, we can't talk about drugs. <laughs> and now I have to say, you don't have to talk about drugs. You know, what a world. <laughs> but speaking of drugs, there, there's something that, that you talked about uh, when we first met years ago, and I've never followed up on it yet, but, and I've probably got this completely wrong, and so I want to get it straightened out before I, I repeat lies about it. But as I recall, you did Datura in the Himalayas and almost had an OD. Is that true? Well, I was initiated into the use of Datura by a Hindu Swami, uh, Swami Dharam Jyoti. And I, I guess it depends on the definition of an OD. Um, <laughs> and I'm much more adept at using it. And uh, so that hasn't happened since. But uh, when Swami dosed me one night in Kathmandu, uh, we were getting ready to go to a Hindu ceremony that um, only he, you know, he, he had the ability to bring me as Westerner into it. And uh, so he gave me some detura, which... And uh, I took in his room, and we were talking before we went out. And I was walking to the taxi we had uh, waiting for us. And the next thing I knew, I was picking myself up off the ground. <laughs> so something had <laughs> You know, basically, I completely blacked out. And I've heard some others who have had a similar experience and uh but i recovered myself uh he then gave me a much stronger dose later on of datura and uh he got quite concerned but i was 
I mean, I was having quite a ride, but I was fine. And uh, so I gave, uh, it, since that time, I wrote an article about it called um, Swami's Sacred Plant, and I can refer you to that. It's downloadable off my website. And um, there Yeah, Rio, if it's okay with you, I would like to uh, podcast our conversation we're having right now, and uh, I'll put the links in there, too, uh, send them to your website. I think uh, people would be really fascinated to read that. Uh, do you have any idea what the dose was that you had, what, what amount? No, I don't. Because he made it, uh, in, at least in my mind right now, maybe there's something in the article, but it wasn't a situation where I could say, hey, stop, let me weigh that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it already made it into a paste. That was the way he prepared it. And then he put it inside a beetle. And um, that was uh, the way he took it in the traditional manner. I, I think that uh, on two different occasions in our ayahuasca circle, uh, the uh, ayahuasquero had included a, some tura in his brew, which uh, actually did cause a problem for one man. But uh, the, I, I can't really say I ever you took the tura, except one time at dinner at your house, you had these beautiful trees with these just loaded with blossoms. And after dinner, when you serve tea, we all have a, a detura blossom in our tea. And that's the closest I ever came to taking it. <laughs> The way I recommend, if anyone's interested, and I will say that it's a very dangerous and deadly drug, um, though it has obviously very good uh, uses, um, is that the way I work with it now is that I dry usually the flower and then break it up into small, not terribly small, but into small pieces, and maybe in a pipe with a bit of marijuana base, um, put some, and then smoke it. And I tell people to start out with just a pinch, really, and see how the effect is. Usually the effect does not last for very long. So you'll be able to see where you're at and how to gauge it. But you do want to be careful because one of the things about Detura is what happened to me, for example, where I just totally blacked out. And the next thing I knew, you know, I was picking myself up. Uh, so you want to give it a little time to take effect before you take any more and just say, oh, nothing happened. I'll, you know, hit it again. Um, do you, do you, qu question here, do you have any memories of of a Daytura trip? Because I understand it's a powerful dissociative, and I'm just wondering if the have you can you bring anything back? Yeah, on a light dose. I mean, Datura technically is called a delirium, and but I have found that on light doses, uh, and that's why I encourage the smoking approach because you can control it quite accurately. I'm I'm fine. My memory is there. I remember what happened, and I've never smoked enough to have one of those blackouts. When I had that blackout in Kathmandu, it was I took it orally, and I don't recommend that at all because it's very unpredictable. You know, some of the stories you hear, uh, somebody 
you know, makes a tea out of it, drinks a whole bunch, no effect, drinks some more, and then the next thing, you know, they wake up three days later and their friends tell them, you know, you were doing this and you were doing that. I mean, to me, that's not <laughs> very effective, <laughs> and you're not going to bring anything back from it, Dion. Yeah, so, that's somebody's been overdose. Do you mind, can you share a specific memory? It, um, you share one of the things that I notice usually uh, as it's beginning to affect me is that my vision becomes much more acute and my hearing becomes more acute. Um, I also found that it encourages conversation. And again, this is all in lower doses. In fact, at the International Transpersonal Conference um, 2017 in Prague, I made a presentation on the potential of Datura as a therapeutic uh, aid because of its ability to get you into a, a, an altered state. I think in some cases the delirium quality is actually useful and helpful and because it only lasts maybe for an hour. When you're, again, when you're smoking it, once you figure out how much do I want to smoke, and when you get comfortable, and you can remember what happened. So I think that uh, it has great potential in that way, and, you know, I'd encourage people to try it, if, if you're so inclined. Well, again, with the caveat that it is very dangerous, can be very dangerous, can lead to death, and, you know, overdose, but completely out of control. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely not for the faint of heart or for the inexperienced. It should only be a you're really... Not, you're not selling it to me. <laughs> <laughs> it needs to be a very experienced psychonaut, like somebody who knew Terrence at Esalen back in the 90s, uh, like Ian. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's not something to play around with, for sure. No. Do you have the ability to make any kind of experiential comparison of the experience of smoking... Uh, Dutura and smoking salvia divinorum, just because that's something that is more broadly on people's experience menu these days. I, to be honest with you, I've not done much with salvia. I didn't find that I had much of an effect from it. And either that could have been the dose, the strain, or just myself. So, no, I can't really compare them. Yeah. Well, Rio, I, I've learned uh, that approximately 25% of adults don't have enough receptors to have a true salvia experience. Uh, I'm one of them. I've, I've tried all kinds of, uh, you know, six times, 20 times and all like that. And I, I, I only get the sweats. I never really have an experience of any kind. And uh, you probably have a similar sort of uh, biology <laughs> that, that just doesn't let it, uh, you know, bind like that and yet i know some people with one one hit of salvia and they're gone for you know an hour so uh wow. you know it's 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 okay. definitely uh not one size fits all interesting. interesting is is there any any substance that uh you would say your experiences were similar to uh on on detura hmm Maybe a little bit sometimes, you know, on certain cannabis strains, um, you know, in a high, high dose, so get kind of uh, disoriented. But uh, it's probably more disorientation than delirium effect. So I, I think Detour is quite unique 
in, in its properties. And that, that and your hesitation in trying to find something comparable is enough to get people like me saying, okay, now that's something totally new. I got to give it a try. And fortunately, I'm old enough that I don't do that anymore. But uh, I have to admit, <laughs> that's tempting. Apparently, uh, Carlos Castanetas, for all of his whole canon, um, was he could handle his Datura. And that was uh -huh. something that. That was a that he was apparently it's the uh, it's the drug of choice for one in fifty shamans, and mm. if you can pilot it and you know you're do then it, it you know you can transform into a crow or whatever it is and get visions from from afar or whatever, and that a lot of his based on his experience with uh, with Datura, and from where I grew up in Los Angeles, that was the um, uh, we had it growing everywhere. And uh, that would, the Chumash would use it as for their coming of age rituals. And, uh, yeah. it, it, and where I worked on Catalina, as, as Lorenzo all know, um, and the, the, the Pimu out there, they would have it as their coming of age ritual. And I probably in a higher strength than on the mainland because they, about one out of 10, from what I read, would die from the, from the ritual. And, uh, you know, a good way to regulate population, especially among young men, you know, young men on an island. So that was how they, you know, possibly how they kept their, their down. I haven't heard and, anything and by the way, about Datura. Ian has written an interesting book about some of these experiences. Is it, has it published yet or is it still a uh, pre-publication? Uh, I, I finished, finished it and uh, I've got an agent, uh, I've got a new agent and she's going to, take it out and hopefully uh, we'll bring McKenna to the masses. Uh, once it's, if, once it's if, out there, I'll, I'll really promote it here because there's some really good trip stories in there. It's a coming of age book, actually. <laughs> Rio, can you give me one image, one, uh, something that you brought back, one memorable experience um, from, from uh, Daytura, just for curiosity's sake? <laughs> Well, I think the, the the biggest thing is that well, the two things which kind of go together. One is the delirium. So, I mean, things do kind of change in in that sense. And then the other is the visual and audio acuity, like that particular night in Kathmandu, just going to that Hindu ceremony was mind-blowing i mean and, and maybe it would have been mind-blowing in another state as well but the death tour certainly brought me there now i will say um that swami and you read about his practice in my article which is a unique oral practice and i go into that um did tell me that uh, he, he was a sanskrit scholar and he said that a lot of his studies uh, especially with Sanskrit, that he had been under the influence of Datura, that if he wasn't under Datura, he could not remember. Mm. So that gives you an example, maybe of, you know, that type of effect. But that, you know, we call that, uh, we call that state-specific knowledge usually. Sorry, Ian, go ahead. I was just wondering if it grew out there. Is, is, is it endemic to the Himalayan foothills? Uh, in India and Nepal, yes. Huh. 
interesting. Yeah. yeah. And like you say, in Southern California, in, in L.A. and Southern California, it grows all over the place here. Right. Now, usually in Southern California, I've found it anyway, is the Brugmansia trees. So that's different than Datura, the Datura bush. But the effect is very good. And I find, I have a collection now of I don't know how many strains of it. And some of them, you know, are a little sweeter than others. And uh, But, you, you know, the variation can be tremendous in the chemical constituents. So that's why you need to be very careful. And probably, even though eventually I would like to work out, this is an okay dose. For the moment, just start with a pinch. And, and, and I'd like to point out, Ian, that, that uh, not everybody peaks in their 20s because I don't know that Rio has peaked yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope not. <laughs> and, and for what it's worth, uh, I think it's more of a 20 to 25-year period because I didn't start psychedelics until I was in my 40s. And I really peaked in my mid-50s. And, you know, I'm in my late 70s now, and I, you know, I'm a cannabis user and occasional little acid now and then, mushrooms once in a while. But uh, I, I definitely peaked in my usage uh, 10 years ago. Do you feel like that, that stood you in good stead because your mind was sort of, you had a... Um, you had a greater sort of rational mind and experience so that when you put the psychedelic lens on that, you had a more of an, uh, or was it harder to break you apart to have the full psychedelic experience? Like how did it hit you when you first started? It, it first hit me in that I sure wasted my life during the 60s by not doing this. I started too late. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, uh, I think that it was good for me. I'm not saying it's good for everybody to wait so late in life. I'm too impulsive, and I would have killed myself by now, you know, earlier. So I was 42 when I had my first experience. But here's the thing is I read all of the the uh, Casaneda books before I'd had my first acid trip and before I'd had my first mushroom or ayahuasca trip. I just had cannabis and MDMA. And so I read all those books, and I didn't even realize he talked about Datura until just now when you said it. You know, I, I read them so far back that I don't remember that much of them. Uh, so I think that uh, uh, it doesn't really matter the age you are as long as you're, you're cautious. However, that said, uh, my friend over in England, the dope fiend, he's, he's in his early 30s now, but he was in his early 20s when I first met him. And he was really advocating for people to not smoke pot until they're 21 to make sure all the, the neurons were, uh, you know, connected and everything. So uh, that came from somebody who is a real pothead. And, uh, you know, I, I think that young people, uh, the later you wait, the better off you'll be because you'll be a little more cautious and like that. In my case, it was important because I, even in my 40s, I did things that were just too dangerous to do and I should never have done them. But I didn't know. I didn't have any peers. I didn't have anybody to talk to. You know, I was out there by myself. And so anything that came down the pike, I'd swallow it. Uh, <laughs> but before we get off the tour, I've got another question I want to ask uh, Rio. But uh, does anybody have other tour questions they'd like to get into? Yes, I do. Um, and you mentioned the Swami that 
he needed Dacturus to remember. And I'm, I'm thinking, remember what? And then you said, you mentioned state system knowledge. What does that mean, that you remember things in a certain state? Yeah, so Swami was, amongst other things, a Sanskrit scholar. And he told me that it, because his normal state was that he was taking Datura all through the day. And so he was constantly on it in a certain state of consciousness. And in his case, he had started as a young boy. So he had a tremendous, you know, ability to take a lot without having problem. But there is something we, which is called state specific knowledge, meaning that you can only access that knowledge, that information or understanding when you're in a certain state of consciousness similar to the one in which you originally had the insights or that experience. So that, that's what he was describing. And I don't know your, your own personal, you know, history and use of different substances, but I think that, um, I know I've experienced similar, uh, similar thing where, you know, it's not sort of in my waking consciousness, maybe some insight that I had at a particular time. And uh, I get back in that state of consciousness and I say, oh, okay, I can see that and so on and so forth that I may have quote unquote forgotten when I'm in a lower state of consciousness. Yeah, this remembering what we've forgotten is really interesting. Um, one time I was, uh, by accident, uh, took some windowpane acid. I, I didn't mean to. It, it, like, got into my tea somehow. And um, and I haven't tripped very much at all. So I truly did not know what was going on. Um, I, I was reading a book on Zen and I thought, well, maybe this is Satori. And then I didn't want Satori anymore. It was, it was baffling what was happening. Um, but I went down to a lake and I watched by like the crescent moon, the reflection on the lake. And it was all these Sanskrit, um, symbols, uh, as far as I know, I mean, I was, I'm from Wisconsin, you know, I didn't know much about Sanskrit. And, um, I knew, I, I by reading it, I, I saw the, I knew the, the secrets of the universe. But then when it wore off, I forgot it all. <laughs> <laughs> Probably has yeah. happened to a few yeah. other people. But that, that was, when you said that state-induced, you know, memory, th that's what I've always been baffled by that. Like, how did I know that? What was I reading? What was I on to? So this is such interesting stuff. Thank you. <laughs> you know, that, that experience, you know, what I learned in that state. I, I one morning, was uh, coming down. It was around 7 in the morning. I was coming down from an all-night acid trip. I was over in Daytona Beach working. And I, I uh, had breakfast in the Volusa Diner, and I saw a biker guy and the waitress interacting, and they were at the table next to me, and I had 
the biggest aha moment I've ever had in my life. I, I understood the meaning of life. And I rushed back to my office and I wrote, I found the meaning of life in the Belusa Diner. And I couldn't get any farther. <laughs> I had no memory of what the meaning of life is, so I've still been searching for it. <laughs> but, Rio, I, I'd like to kind of turn the corner a little bit because you were involved in one of the most fascinating projects in the United States in many years. It's the Biosphere 2 project. And the uh, first time I went to a party at your house, uh, uh, Tango and John Allen was there and a number of the Biospherians. And could you tell us a little bit about that project? Because weren't you the communications director for that project? I was uh, both responsible I was, uh, for bringing in um, contributions uh, and also then the communications director. And I pretty much, uh, with my team, designed and built the communication system that allowed the biospherians, the people who were inside the biosphere, to communicate between Biosphere 2 and Biosphere 1, which is what we call where we live. So Biosphere 2 was a... Um, 3.14 acre had a footprint of 3.14 acres, uh, closed system that was materially, uh, closed, but energetically and informationally open. With and a dome over it. Not a formal dome, but using the structure, uh, Bucky Fuller's structure, which was then, uh, one of his students, Peter Pierce, designed for the biosphere. So it allowed for long expanses of glass um, to be held without any internal supports. Um, and the first major closure, which is the one that I was communications director for, communication systems director, um, was a two-year closure and 91-93 and uh, we were able to recycle all of their air and water and food, and they produced about 80% of their food. They grew it inside. Um, the other 20% had been grown before the closure actually occurred. And it got a lot of worldwide press, you know, some positive, some negative. Um, there were, you know, I could go on for quite a long time about all the different things, but basically a lot of good research came out of it. Um, and we did show that people could live in a closed system. Uh, if you look at it all, you may hear comments about, oh, well, they injected oxygen. Well, so it, you know, the media, first the media raised it up and then they put it down, uh, because that's how you sell more media. So what happened uh, was that the oxygen became sequestered in the cement and it weakened actually the cement, which is something useful to know when you're building bridges and the like. Uh, but nobody knew in advance that that was going to happen because of the high uh, CO2 levels. So the oxygen became sequestered and then it wasn't available for breathing. So eventually we did have to inject some oxygen, but we knew how much we were injecting. And uh, the biosphere was about a hundred times more sealed than the space station. 
So we really understood what was going on inside. We knew, you know, our partial pressures of gas, our, you know, how many moles we had of every different uh, gaseous compound in there. So it was all known. It was a what you could call a critical experiment, but in any experiment, you're interested in what you're going to learn. So we did learn quite a bit, and I believe that the the project was a tremendous success. Um, then other things happened. Um, there was a film that just recently was released, and uh, it's available on iTunes. I know. There may be other places you can see it, but it is available on iTunes. And again, I'll put the name in here. Uh, the film itself has a tremendous amount of my footage in it, both from the projects leading up to the biosphere and <clears throat> to the biosphere itself, plus a lot of the footage which really made the film possible from Dr. Roy Walford, who's now deceased, but was one of the biospherians. He was the medical doctor inside, and he shot a tremendous amount of uh, video footage of life inside, and that really gave them the thread to put the film together. Um, Here is the name. It's very simple, Spaceship Earth, and it's available on iTunes. And I'll I'll put all these links in the program notes when I podcast this. Uh, and okay. and uh, also, Rio, uh, I, I want to put in links to uh, your work, too. Uh, what, what all do you want to uh, – uh, how, how do we uh, find more about you? <laughs> well, good question. Uh, of course, you can go to my website if you Google me, Rio Han. Uh, I'll put that here. Um, you find a lot of stuff. Um, and I put my website in earlier, but uh, that doesn't have so much on it. It has been updated in quite a while. Um, but that, that will give you some, and maybe you and I can, you know, go over that off. Yeah, we'll go, we'll go over some stuff. And, and I, I didn't uh, – I put your Planque Norte talk uh, from this past uh, – last August, uh, a year ago – up on uh, the Patreon site because I couldn't clean it up. It, it was, uh, they had a bad cord for the mic and uh, oh, there's yeah. so much static. It's very hard to listen to. I put it there and, oh, and there's been about a hundred or so people listen to it. So uh, you at least had a little bigger audience than you had on the playa. Uh, oh, and good. I, I appreciate yeah. your time doing that. So, uh, uh, <clears throat> well, we're, we're about at the end of an hour here, which is about as long as I like to hold people because everybody has things going on and there are several people here who are at work right now, I happen to know, and <laughs> I don't want them to get busted. Uh, it, uh, what what uh, would you like to, uh, what, what haven't we asked you that you'd like to uh, maybe talk about? Hmm. Well, uh, I guess the, the new thing I'm working on is a book uh, titled Sailing the Psychedelic Seas. And so I'll just say a word about that in closing. And that's uh, being a sailor, sea captain, I use that analogy. And I think there is a lot of, uh, you know, value to that analogy. I mean, people call it trips. They call it journeys and sailing. So that idea really struck me as being a good way to develop that. And where that started was at the, 
conference in Berlin, the altered conference in 2017. And I did a, uh, led a panel at the end of the conference uh, called Sailing the Psychedelic Seas. And we had a number of psychonauts there on the stage and invited, after we introduced ourselves, uh, we invited the audience to ask questions. And that's how the whole panel went. And I did the same thing now at Burning Man. And uh, so that led me to the idea of putting together a book that would have a lot of experiential information in it and to share experience and knowledge, uh, but mainly from the experience side, because, you know, there are many, many great books available that go into a lot of detail. You get deeply into the science and the chemistry and you know, every, everything. But uh, I don't think there is kind of a book that focuses on the experiential side necessarily. Um, and taking it from that perspective, the other aspect of that is a, a different talk uh, that I've done, um, which um, is called uh, The Importance of Set or Mindset, more properly, but it was always called Set. Uh, in Altered States Exploration. And I kind of came upon this after hearing stories of people who more and more today seem to be running into problems when they take substances. They don't have the background they don't have that we had in the early days. Uh, somehow, you know, some of the basic texts like, um, uh, that Leary and Alpert did, uh, the, um, the uh, book of the dead. Yeah. The book of the dead. Yeah. yeah. But it was based on that. It was called the, what the psychedelic experience. That's it. Right. And you know, there's some very, I'm not going to talk about the whole book, but at the beginning, there's some very basic, good, solid beginning information in there and things that you can actually work with when you're on a journey. And, but the, the big thing that struck me, and this was more from personal experience and the personal experience of working with a lot of people over the years and something else we could talk about uh, at another time, is that we all approach the field and the subject as explorers. Now, I am an explorer. I'm in a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society, a fellow of the Explorers Club. Um, but that mindset of the explorer seemed to me to be a very valuable mindset to take on, if you don't have it already, to take it on. And my hope is that that would keep a lot of people out of trouble who, say, have been taken advantage of by uh, unscrupulous shaman. And this happens a lot now, evidently. I mean, there's even a network, uh, a couple of women um, at the Girona conference uh, from Iquitos have developed a network there where you can find out who are safe shaman to go and work with. I mean, the exploitation that occurs a great deal today. So this book will kind of address that, and that's where my concept came out of and then melding that with the questions that we did uh, at the Berlin, and then now we're doing it uh, Burning Man. Um, 
So that's something that's coming in the future. Well, real, I'll tell you what, uh, I'm really fascinated about the book. I can't wait to read it myself, and you can't wait to finish it, I'm sure. <laughs> but right. what, what I'd like to offer is if you want to come back here anytime, like even next Thursday. <laughs> okay, that sounds great. Let's, if, and, uh, I'll check in with you. We'll see what's happening next Thursday. And if that doesn't work, we'll plan it for another one. It sounds great. And, uh, you know, you and I will get together offline. I've got a couple other things I want to talk to you about, and also we'll, we'll hook up there. But I think that'd be great. And, uh, I'm sure that, uh, by next week, uh, or whenever you come, uh, able to come back, uh, that people will have even more questions because we've, uh, <laughs> we've put a lot of things out here. I'll put this out in the podcast and we'll see if we can, uh, uh, troll for a few more questions. But I, I think that could be a fascinating conversation that's kind of a, a directed conversation, uh, and uh, maybe it'll provide a little uh, insight for your book. Who knows? <laughs> oh, great. And thank you, Lorenzo. It's so good to hook up again after so long. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, we, we can't say I'll get together next week now because we're all stuck. <laughs> but uh, we will see one another in person again. I know that. And uh, I know that, uh, too. And uh, I really appreciate your time being here and, and everybody else's time, too. Uh, thank you all very much. And uh, until next week, y'all. Keep the old faith and stay high. <laughs> Take care of Stay stay. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends. <laughs>